It was a joy to spend time with many of you yesterday at the missions conference and to have some time together, and I'm glad to be with the rest of you who weren't able to come yesterday. Uh, I'd love to spend more time with you uh, after the service. I have a little booth set up, and so I'd love to visit with you if I don't know you already, and there's some Indian snacks you can check out and some stuff about our ministry and an email sign-up for stuff, so I encourage you to stop by the booth and visit afterwards and have a chance to spend time together. Uh, I want to direct your attention to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Uh, This is one of my favorite texts to preach on when it comes to thinking about the church's calling to mission and to take the good news of our great Savior to the very ends of the globe. And so I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 15 to 24, and I'd like to pray before we stand and read. So let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, it's been such a joy to engage with you in this worship service, to be reminded of your grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, how you have pursued us to redeem us in Jesus, that we might be filled and indwelt by your Holy Spirit, that we can offer you worship in spirit and in truth. We're so thankful for the reminder of your assurance of pardon and how you feed us with your word that we may know you and may be equipped to serve you. And so, Lord, even as we begin to And before we begin to read this text that we're going to spend some time thinking about and hearing preached, we would plead with you that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might see what you intend us to see in this passage that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write so long ago. And we pray, Father, that we would see most of all the matchless beauty of our Redeemer and the Savior of the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in seeing him, we would be transformed by him. So, Father, give us faith and obedience to respond to your word. We love you and thank you for it and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Romans chapter 15, verse 15 to 24. Romans 15, 15 to 24. The word of God says this, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. My friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you've just heard is indeed God's word. Please be seated. I enjoyed getting to introduce India to some of you yesterday and show you some slides and tell you about this weird and wonderful and great nation. Uh, It is a nation that is four times the size of the United States, 1.38 billion people. 
Uh, many Indians would be very much like you in some of the global major cities like we serve in in Bangalore and others in other settings would be very different than you. Uh, one of the older practices that Indians still give themselves to is uh, arranged marriage. So still seven out of ten young Indians will be arranged to a, a partner, usually by their parents, with a dowry involved, um, and not do what we typically call uh, dating here. Uh, and Indians call that love marriage. So if an Indian you know, dates and finds someone, they say they have a love marriage versus an arranged marriage. And one of the things when I meet an Indian couple, as I'm getting to know them, I tend to ask, Tell me about your story. Do you have a, a love marriage or an arranged marriage? Now, you might think all the drama would be in the love marriages, but actually the arranged marriages can be almost like a soap opera at times. Uh, oftentimes it involves a, a monetary arrangement where the, the, um, the bride's, prospective bride's parents have to pay a large dowry, and they negotiate that. There's often character background studies done, and sometimes there's a lot of gossip and false stuff done, and it's almost dramatic. And so some of the real drama comes in an arranged marriage. Many times the boy and the girl or the young man and the young woman have really maybe only had one or two conversations as they stand and pledge themselves in marriage. And so it's quite interesting. Now, in America, we used to have something much more akin to arranged marriage uh, than we do today. It used to be a couple hundred years ago, if you, wanted, if you were a man and you wanted a young woman, you had to go to the father and the mother, and you really had to make a case that you sh they should give their daughter to you in marriage. And so there's some interesting proposals if you look even in the history of our country a couple of hundred years ago. And I want to introduce this text to you today by sharing what I think is the most remarkable marriage proposal I've ever heard as a young man went to the parents of the one he wanted to love and marry and, in, and asked for permission. And I want to put you in this situation. This happened a couple hundred years ago, but I want to get you there as much as I can. So we're going to do a little audience participation here for a moment. If you're a single young man from 13 to 100, would you raise your hand? If you're single, 13 to 100, okay. As I read this, I want you to think, if you just raise your hand, what would give me the courage to make this kind of proposal? What, what would even make me dream about saying what I, I'm going to say to this girl's parents? Now, if you're a single girl, 13 to 100, would you raise your hand? Single women, all right. I want you to put yourself in the place of this young lady named Anne Hasseltine, who's going to receive this marriage proposal and who wants to say yes to it. I want you to ask yourself, why in the world would I say yes to this proposal? Now, if you're a parent, would you raise your hand? If you have children, raise your hand. Okay, you can put them down. If you're a parent, I want you to put yourself in the place of Anne Hasseltine's parents and ask, would I say yes or no to this proposal and why? Okay, so almost everybody, if you're 13 or above, you have a place here. Uh, listen to this proposal and see what you would say. Adoniram Judson writes to Anne Hasseltine's parents, and especially to her father, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise 
which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Now that's a remarkable marriage proposal, is it not? (laughs) So wherever you find yourself in that story, wherever I've placed you, what would you say? How as a young man could you have the courage to even say something like that to a young woman's parents? If you're a young woman, why would you say yes to that? Why would you sign up for that? And perhaps most dearly as parents, would you say yes to your daughter being given away to this life with this man? Well, you probably know that everybody said yes in this scenario. Uh, They were committed followers of Jesus, and they had been shaped by text like Romans 15, the call of the Bible to glorify our Redeemer by fulfilling his great commission, obeying his great commission to take the good news of Jesus to all the unreached peoples and people groups of our world. They recognized that this calling was more important than temporary comfort and safety. They recognized that the priority of Christ for his blood-bought church is the pushing forward of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so I want us to wrestle for a few moments with that this morning and thinking about the priority of the church in taking the gospel to unreached people groups. Not just people, not just people who don't know him, but whole groups, distinct ethno-linguistic groups who where there may be no church or where most people have never heard the gospel and know no Christians. And so as we get to the end of this sermon in a moment, I want to ask you two questions. Do you understand the priority that Christ has for his church to take the gospel to unreached peoples? Maybe you come in here already understanding that. Maybe you don't yet, but I hope you will by the end of this sermon. And then secondly, whether you already understand the priority of that or you're learning of it today, How is your life practically being shaped as a follower of Jesus to give yourself to this mission? And so let's talk about the priority of unreached people groups. I'm going to draw out three things from this text. If you're taking notes, we'll look firstly how Christ calls us to unreached people groups. Christ himself calls us to unreached people groups. Secondly, we'll see how Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. And then an even longer third one, Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. And I'll repeat them as we come on there if you're taking notes. But let's look firstly at this call that Christ has upon his church to unreached people groups. Now, most of the time when we read the book of Romans, we don't sit down and read it in one sitting. In fact, for many of us who are self-consciously Reformed and Presbyterians, we would probably say that Romans is one of our favorite books, and we often give very detailed study to maybe a particular chapter or a section or a few verses. But if you were to sit down with the book of Romans and read it cover to cover, it was originally in a letter, it was meant to be read to the church in one setting, you might notice something interesting about Romans You might see that in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about his ministry plans and how he'd often longed to go to Rome and yet had been prevented from coming to Rome. But then he doesn't tell why. He doesn't tell what has prevented him. He doesn't tell why he really wants to come other than to preach the gospel until we get to the very end here in chapter 15 as we're nearing the conclusion of his letter. He brackets this letter with his ministry plans, and we find out something very interesting of why He really wants to come there, why he really wants to do uh, beyond there, 
And we discovered in our text in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I'm going to prove this by Old Testament scripture. This is an Old Testament principle, but it's written, those who've never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. And then notice verse 22. He identifies the reason he hasn't come. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul's commitment to unreached peoples prevented him from going to see the church at Rome and minister to them because that was a higher priority. And he says in verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I've longed to come, now he's going to come. Now he's freed up because he's done with his work in this section of of the world and he can move forward. and, And yet his deepest purpose isn't just to go to Rome to hang out with the Christians, even just to do ministry among them. He has an even deeper purpose for his visit to Rome. Look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you, and notice the language, in passing as I go to Spain. And notice, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is still thinking unreached peoples. Spain was the unreached area of that world at that time. And so we discover that the reason he can't come and hasn't able to come to this point is because of priority of unreached peoples. Even the main reason of why he's coming here is unreached peoples. Because after all, he says he's just passing through. When you tell someone you're passing through, they know that's not the final destination. When I was serving in India, we had a conference in Cambodia that I had to attend with other MTW uh, folks. And to get there, I had to travel through Bangkok, Thailand. I had to change planes there. And I had a friend, a young man who was in our college career ministry that I led down the road at Trinity Presbyterian, and I hadn't seen him in years. And so I knew I had an eight-hour layover, so I emailed Stephen, and I said, Hey, Stephen, I'm coming through. I'm passing through on my way to Cambodia. Can we grab some lunch during my layover? Maybe you can show me Bangkok. And he said, Oh, that'd be great. And I was excited to see Stephen. He was a friend. I hadn't seen him in a while. He knew I was excited to see him. But he also knew the the main reason for me coming on a plane was not to see him. I was passing through on my way to this conference. And similarly, Paul says, as much as I want to see you, as much as we're going to enjoy fellowship and encourage each other, do ministry together, I'm really coming to help you do ministry with me to the unreached in Spain. I find that fascinating because I think what we see in Romans, this book that is so important to us in our Reformation heritage, this one where we celebrate the just perhaps the most systematic explanation of the doctrines of grace, the depravity of man, the full justification of God uh, for sinners through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, election, uh, Christian living based on our union with Christ. All these things that we celebrate, this wonderful rich theology I believe, was written in the service of the gospel going forward to unreached peoples. I believe that the reason Paul explains so much and brackets these letters with his ministry, or this uh, letter with his ministry plans is he wants the church there, as he calls them to join in this mission, to know the gospel that he preaches. He's going to call for people, money, encouragement, and prayer, and he says, the gospel that I'm asking you to join to, this is it. This is the gospel that I preach. But he also does something else. We're not going to read it, but if you just look over at Romans chapter 16, you'll notice that like many of his letters, he greets all these people in the church there. In fact, from Romans 16, 1 to 16, a person after person after person he greets, perhaps more than any other letter. And sometimes people have wondered, why does he greet so many people? Now, he's never been to the church at Rome. He's met people throughout his uh, forays and on mission trips throughout the world, and so some of them are now in Rome 
The question is, why does he mention all these people? I think it's obvious as a missionary. I think he's saying, these are, these are my references. I'm telling you the gospel that I preach. Here's my theology. If you want to know if I actually live it, go talk to, I'll just look at any of the persons. You can go talk to Ampliatus in verse 8 or Urbanus in verse 9 or Philogius in verse 15. All these people can testify that I don't just preach this gospel. This gospel shapes me. I don't just preach about Christ. Christ has captivated my life. His spirit fills my life. So he gives them his theology and he gives them his references. When my wife and I signed up with Mission to the World 13 years ago to be missionaries, they investigated these two things. They wanted to know, do we believe this Reformed theology? We had to take Bible tests and affirm our agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they took references and actually called them. They called employers, uh, pastors, friends. And it wasn't the perfunctory. They're like, is there any reason you know this person doesn't and shouldn't serve as a missionary? Are they really godly? Do they actually live out what they say? And so our theology and references were key. And I believe that's what Romans is at the deepest level. It is Paul presenting himself and pointing to people so that the church in Rome will join him in his great mission of taking the gospel to those who've never heard. And so even in Paul's ministry plans, we see Christ's call to unreached people groups, but we also see it in the way that Paul does ministry. Look at verse 19. He says something really remarkable. If we were living in Rome, we would be stunned by what he says when he says in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, some from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He'll even say in verse 23, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Really? Now, it may not strike us. We, we kind of know where Jerusalem is on our map, but Illyricum, you probably don't have a, a clear mental picture of what he's saying. Illyricum is a long, long way from Jerusalem. If you put your middle Mediterranean map in your mind and you remember the boot of Italy, if you go just across the Adriatic Sea, that's Illyricum. It is a long way from Jerusalem. It was like if Paul said to an American audience from Orlando, Florida to Seattle, Washington, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's setting these limits and giving a, a massive region where he is done with his ministry, that he needs to move on because there's no longer room for ministry. And we say, how is that the case? How can the Apostle Paul say there's no longer any room for his pioneering ministry? Well, it's because Paul's method as we look out in the New Testament and we look at the book of Acts is that he would go to a major city, an important city, and he would preach the gospel and plant a church. And sometimes only just a matter of weeks, sometimes a few years. And then as the church was built up, as it was growing, he would leave the church to continue to plant more churches in that region to continue to do the work of evangelism. But his calling was to plant those churches that could do more church planting and evangelism. And so if there was a, a church in the major city of that region, he would leave the church to that work and go forward. And it tells us something very important about Paul's missionary method that he was moving forward. And it has to have implications for how we as the church engage in the mission of taking the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, the reality is we need to do ministry everywhere. Our neighbors need the gospel. We need to plant more churches in North Texas and the United States. We need to support university ministry. We need to serve in Mexico. In one sense, we need to take the gospel from everywhere to everywhere. 
And yet there's a priority because there's a large section of our world that is unreached with the gospel, and there's a biblical priority that we would give attention to that, that we would take the gospel and many of our missionaries and much of our money given to missions to those places that are most desperately needy, who have not heard or who have little access to the gospel. And sadly, missiologists tell us that only about 2 to 3% of missionaries go to unreached people groups. And only about $2 for every $100 we give to missions goes to those who are serving in places that are characterized by unreached people groups. And it reminds us that we don't quite have the priority that Christ has for his church, this priority that, that drove the Apostle Paul, that shaped his ministry plans. Now the question is, where did Paul get this passion? Was it merely a Damascus Road experience? Was it only an exclusive calling on Paul and no one else? Well, no, he roots his understanding in the Old Testament, his scriptures. Look at verse 20 and 21. After he's made this wonderful programmatic statement about his ministry that he wants to go where Christ has not been named, then he gives the proof. Verse 21, but as it is written, and then he's going to quote from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 52. He says, those who have never been told of him, the, the Redeemer, the Messiah, will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, if anybody should get that the Bible calls us to the nations, it should be we who claim to be reformed because we understand the gospel plan from Genesis to Revelation. We understand that the first news of the gospel came in Genesis 3.15, that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him and his seed all the nations would be blessed. And we know in our covenant theology that we celebrate that the, the Bible is one story of God redeeming a people for himself and that we discover that even before history began there was a time in eternity past where the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did what we call a, a pactum salutum, a, a covenant of redemption, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decreed that they would act to redeem a people for their name ever before they even created. And so we know that the Bible story is one of mission, it's one of God creating, and then in his mysterious plan, letting men fall and having a plan to redeem men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be saved by his grace alone and to be brought into the white-hot enjoyment of his Trinitarian being and to worship him and enjoy him. Friends, if we are whole Bible Christians, we will be missional Christians and we will have that heartbeat to see the gospel go forward like it was for the Apostle Paul. And because he was driven by Scripture, by all of Scripture and mission, notice how he characterizes his ministry in verse 16 as he talks about the way God describes calls him. He says, I am a, in verse 16, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the priestly imagery? In fact, even the word for minister, it's not the normal Greek word diakonos, it's liturgus. It's a, a word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about priestly ministrations. So he's very much evoking priestly ministry, a, a priest offering up sacrifices, but what is his sacrifice to the triune God? It's the new peoples that are hearing and responding to the gospel. It's an act of his worship to preach the gospel and to present those who respond to Jesus as an act of his worship. And notice how he highlights every member of our missionary triune God in verse 16. He's a minister of Christ Jesus, the incarnate second member of the Trinity, it's the gospel of God, implying the gospel of God the Father, 
He offers the Gentiles acceptably through who? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Our triune God is a God of mission. This God who in eternity past chose a people for himself. This God who calls out of darkness men and women to his light and to proclaim his excellencies. This God is passionate about his glory being proclaimed through the gospel. And so Paul says if you want to be passionate about something your triune God is passionate about, get headlong in his mission of taking the gospel to unreached peoples. That drove the apostle Paul, and I believe Paul says that should drive the church as we carry on his mission. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, Richie, that was 2,000 years ago. Surely, surely the work is done. Surely there are no unreached people groups in our world after 2,000 years of Christian mission. And I wish I could tell you that that was the case, but it's not. 40% of our world still live in unreached peoples. There are still billions and billions of people who've never heard the gospel. In Asia, in the Middle East, in India, in Japan, 86 to 90% of the people have never even met a Christian. And we know that they are under God's wrath. They rebel against God's revelation and creation according to Romans 1. And they are under his white hot wrath with no news that he has graciously sent a redeemer for all who will trust in Jesus Christ. About 6,000 of the 16,000 people groups in our world are unreached with the gospel. In India, the country we serve in, I shared with those who were here yesterday that 46 people groups, 6 million and above, live in the one country of India some of those people groups are 80, 60 million people, most of those who've never heard the gospel. So the job's not done. Well, you think, well, Richie, then well, whose job is it? We're, we're focusing on the Apostle Paul here, but it was never just the Apostle Paul's work. He was called out by a local church. He was serving in Antioch, and the Lord called the church at Antioch to send Paul, and not just Paul, the Lone Ranger missionary, but Paul and Barnabas. It's never been just about one person. Paul may have been the very tip of the spear, but he was going out sent by the local church, supported by the local church, with co-labors for the local church. So how are we living that out, Zion, as a church, as individual members? In the end, I'll talk to you more about going or sending, but I want to give you something you can think about when it comes to your children and grandchildren. We are Reformed and Presbyterians. We talk about passing the faith on to our children covenantally. Hopefully you catechize your children, you teach your children the doctrines of our faith, you want them to, to love the Lord Jesus and understand our faith, and I just wonder if your education and prayer and your catechism of your kids includes this biblical priority of the gospel going to unreached people groups. Are you reading your kids or your grandkids the great missionary biographies? Are you praying with and for your kids alongside them for missionaries who are serving in unreached people groups? Are you praying for countries like Japan and India that we focused on this weekend that are so lost? Parents and grandparents, are you actually praying that some of your children and grandchildren would go to the nations? That God would call them to be missionaries? And at minimum, at minimum, that they would be world-minded Christians who are, if God has not called them to go, they would be passionate senders who shape their lives so that they can support and encourage and pray for those who do go. Friends, I, church, I challenge you, if you're a parent or a grandparent, to catch this vision for your children and grandchildren, to begin to catechize them in the ways of mission theology I love how Anne had this passion for her kids. I'm going to tell you more about her as we finish our last few points here. Anne did say yes to Adoniram in 1812, and they got married and moved to India. 
Um, shortly, they had to go to Burma after that. They got kicked out of India. But she expresses a desire and a passion for her children to embrace the missional theology of the Bible, to take the gospel to the nations. And she writes to her mother in Bradford, Massachusetts, this letter, and she says, I know, my dear mother, uh, you longed much to see my little son. She had a little son named Roger. I wish you were here to see him. He is a sprightly boy and already begins to be very playful. We hope his life may be preserved. She'd already lost a kid, miscarriage. And his heart sanctified that he may become a missionary among the Burmans. That's modern-day Myanmar. Now, I'm going to tell you about some of the sufferings of her life. So She's already had quite a bit of suffering. Many parents would say, well, I want to spare my kid from that. But she's saying, I pray that God would preserve his life so that he can continue the mission. And oh, that American Christians in 2022 and grandparents were pleading with God that we would have the privilege to send our children and grandchildren to the nations more passionate about the glory of Christ and their own personal comfort and safety. Friends, when we look at the scriptures, we see that Christ in many different ways and throughout the scripture calls his church to the unreached. Now, maybe at this point, you're already in terror and fear. <laughs> you're thinking, I'm not praying that for my grandkids or my kids. Surely God doesn't call me to go. Is he calling me to go? If he calls me to go, can I do that? If he's calling me to be generous in my giving and focused in my prayer, can I do that? And in one sense, that's a good response because you can't. <laughs> You can't do anything that we've already talked about in and of your own strength. And the good news, though, is that God doesn't expect you to. We're going to see in our second point that not only does Christ call us to unreached peoples, but Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. That's our second point. Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. Notice how Paul talks about his ministry, especially in verse 17 and 18. He says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything, and notice how Paul couches this. The language is important. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, it would have been theologically proper, and in other places, Paul and biblical writers will say, I've done this through Christ's help. I did this by the Spirit. But Paul could have said that, but I think to emphasize that missions is the work of the Redeemer, Christ, notice the language. He says, Christ, Christ he places as the actor. Christ is the one who has accomplished this through me. I'm just the instrument. He views himself merely as the instrument that Christ works through, and that is the proper perspective. Notice verse 19. He says, I've done this by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now he attributes the Holy Spirit enabling his ministry. He hasn't done it through his own strength. He hasn't done it through what uh, he can do in his native ability. It's through his dependence on the Son, his dependence on the Spirit. Now that shouldn't surprise us, is it? Because we are a people who proclaim that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone from beginning to end. And friends, if you happen to be here and you've been wondering about what all this gospel is, let me just remind you of the gospel so it reminds us why the work of mission is also only the work of God, ultimately. You see, friends, the good news or the bad news of the Bible is that we have rebelled against our good creator. We're called to love him with everything we have, to be motivated in everything we do, to serve him, to give attention to him, to love him, to worship him, and we just don't. And God's wrath is justly against us. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal condemnation for our failure to love God with all of our heart and also our neighbors, ourselves. 
And the scripture says we're helpless to do anything to affect that. There's nothing we can do. We are lost and helpless. But God, in his rich mercy, sends his son to accomplish redemption for his people freely. He sends his son to live and obey the law in the stead of those who will trust him because we have to obey the law of God perfectly to be in God's presence. He sends his son to go to the cross and to be a substitutionary atonement to take the just wrath of the father's displeasure and against the sins of those who would trust Jesus and to satisfy that wrath. He rises again and Christ offers himself freely to all those who will put their trust in him. And friends, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, Christ himself is offering you himself today as your Savior. You receive him by faith alone, trusting in his grace alone. We celebrate that. This is a church that preaches the grace of God in every aspect of their worship service. And so it's no surprise that if salvation is God's work from beginning to end, then accomplishing his mission is his work from beginning to end. And this is extremely important because the task to which God calls us to is so hard. It's impossible. Anne writes to her mother back at home. She talks about the difficulty. She says, you doubtless are expecting to hear by this time, they've been there for a few years, of the Burmans inquiring what they shall do to be saved and rejoicing that we've come to tell them how to escape eternal misery. Alas, you know not the difficulty of communicating the least truth to the dark mind of a heathen particularly those heathen who have a conceited notion of their own wisdom and knowledge and the superior excellence of their own religious system. When Mr. Judson, that's an old-fashioned way of being respectful and referring to her husband, when Mr. Judson had been telling them of the atonement by Christ, they would reply that their minds were stiff, that they did not believe, etc. But these things do not discourage us. Now listen why they don't discourage them. We confidently believe that God in his own time will make his truth effectual unto salvation. Friends, when we grasp on to this call to either go to the nations or to be senders, because those are really the only two obedient options, if we're a goer or a sender, especially in the, the way that the scripture envisions, it is impossible. I remember my own mother when she heard the news when I was 19 and I came to faith and I said, I believe God's calling me to be a missionary. And she was excited that I was now a Christian, but the more it loomed on, the more she's like, are you sure God's calling you to be a missionary? Don't you want to be a pastor here? Don't you want to study more and maybe be a professor? Or, you know, and she, she would do this for years because I didn't go into the mission field until I was 32. And I think my mom was like on a train track looking at, a, you know, this light of the coming of the train towards her, feeling like there's going to be this day when my son's going to leave and I don't know if I'll ever see him again. And she's a godly woman. She loves the Lord, but she struggled to think about sending her son that she loves. One day I was having a conversation with her about a year before we left, and she said, Richie, I have to repent. I realize I've been discouraging to you, and it's just because I love you and I don't want to see you go, and I want my grandkids to be around. And she goes, but the Lord's convicted me of that, and I'm not going to discourage you anymore. My mom had to wrestle through and find the strength of Christ to freely and gladly let us go. Friends, if you answer God's call, maybe God is calling some of you to be missionaries. In fact, I know some are called to be missionaries in here. And maybe God's stirring more of you to do that. It's tough. It's hard. There are so many different levels of hard you, you have no idea. Things that give you comfort and support you have no idea until they're taken away. Being away from family is hard. Trusting your kids if you have kids, and especially a developing country like India, is hard. How are you going to do it? Well, you're not going to do it very well in your own strength. 
But Christ promises himself to you if you feel called to go, if he's calling you. What if you catch on to say, well, you know, I'm not called to go, but I'm called to be a sender. And I'm going to reprioritize my budget, and I'm going to give even more to missions. I'm going to support missionaries. I may even change my lifestyle so I can do that. I'm going to begin to pray faithfully. I'm going to begin to educate my children and grandchildren about missions and pray with and for them that he may call some of them to missions. Where are you going to find the strength to be that kind of sender? Only in the strength of Christ. But Christ promises himself to you because Christ is at work through us to reach unreached people groups. And that is good news for us. So friends, we've seen two things to this point. Christ calls us to unreached people groups. Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. And that leads us to our third and final point, and it's a long one, not long in length, but long in the title. Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. So for a moment, I just want to drive home the application here. Look back at verse 22. I want to remind you that the reason he'd so often been hindered from coming to them was because of the priority of unreached people groups. It wasn't because of a lack of affection. Look at verse 23. He says, I've longed for many years to come to you. He longed to be among them, to do ministry among them, to reunite with many friends he'd met across the empire. It wasn't because of a lack of love or affection. It was because the plans of his life were shaped by the great mission that God has given to his church. Anne Judson experienced much the same dynamic. She loved her family. Her and Adoniram didn't go across the world because they wanted to get away from their family. They loved them. They had a good relationship. And so she wrote this to her mother back in Bradford, Massachusetts. She said, oh, how I long to visit Bradford and spend a few evenings by your firesides and telling you what I've seen and heard. Alas, we have no fireside, no social circle. We're all still alone in this miserable country surrounded by thousands who are ignorant of the true God and the only way of salvation by Jesus Christ. Oh, pray for us that we may be faithful unto death and never give up or be discouraged, though we may not have immediate success. We still feel happy in our employment and have reasons to thank God that he's brought us here. We do hope to live to see the scriptures translated into the Burman language and to see a church formed among these idolaters. Again, for Paul, I'll just remind you that even as he went to Rome, it was only, in verse 24, to enjoy their company for a while, and as verse 24 says, to be helped on my journey there by you. I mean, even in our local ministry, we, we gather together on the Lord's Day, right, for worship, and then the other six days, we're scattered into our community to proclaim Christ with our lips and demonstrate him with our deeds in our workplace and our communities. Our Christian fellowship and worship is to honor God, but also to equip us to go out to our neighbors who need Jesus. Well, in the same way, we extend that even further. We gather together, we work together, we worship together so that we can send out even further to the nations. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to come and worship with you, celebrate with you, encourage you, but I want us to go together and take the gospel to Spain, to the unreached of Spain. So let's just think about this. Let's think about if God is calling you to be a sender. I just want to challenge you before the Lord in response to this text to think about how does your budget reflect that commitment? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to participate in the Great Commission. Give first of all to your local church, but there's more resources beyond just your primary giving to your local church, aren't there? 
We are blessed as people materially. If you stood before God, and you will, one day you'll give an account of the money he's entrusted to you. I just have to ask the question, and you need to ask the question before the Lord. Will your budget, where you spend your money in giving and in missions, does it reflect this priority of the scriptures, that the gospel would go forward to unreached peoples? I can't answer it for you. That's between you and the Lord. Second of all, your prayer life. If you're a Christian, you have some type of rhythm of prayer life, devotions, praying for certain people. Are you making yourself aware of the need of the gospel? What nations most need the gospel? Do you know the missionaries your church supports and our presbytery supports and a mission to the world supports or others that are taking the gospel to the most reached places? Are you praying for them? Is it part of the rhythm of your family worship, of your personal worship? Maybe God's calling you to go. Maybe you've felt it before, and even as we look at texts like this, you just feel your heart stirring. I felt like that for 13 years from the time I was 19 to 32. Every time I'd hear a missions text preached, my heart would just want to explode, and I was like, I, I want to give myself to that as much as I can. Maybe that's you, and maybe something's been holding you back, fear, other things, and maybe today God would move you to take that next step. Maybe it's contacting a mission board like MTW and just saying, what would it look like to go down the road of potentially serving as a missionary? Some of you may be thinking, well, Richie, I'm just, I don't have a regular vocation. I don't have seminary training. Surely God wants people to go to seminary for missions. And yes, we do need pastors. We do need seminary trained men, but we need anybody who's available. And in fact, some of the places in the world that most need the gospel are most closed to people who have only seminary training, like me, who are teaching elders. India is increasingly closed. The Middle East and many of these places are where unreached people groups are. But you and your vocation could go there. You might not even have to raise money. You might be able to join or even take an international posting with your, com your company and spend a few years in some place in the Middle East or India or China or other places and be able to engage in mission in ways that I simply can't because I can't get there. God uses all sorts of people. He really just looks for people who are willing so you're not off the hook if you're not seminary trained, if you don't feel that you have pastoral gifts. Maybe God is calling you to go to the most difficult places. Now, I want to finish by telling you more about the life of Ann Judson. I don't tell you about Ann's life because this is a Be Like Ann Judson sermon. She's a sinner. She's weak and broken just like us. But she's an example of what God the Holy Spirit can do as he really brings his word to bear on our lives. So her and Ann and I got married. They enjoyed two weeks of wedded bliss until the honeymoon was over, and they got on a long boat ride to India. When they got to India, where they expected to serve, the people and the situation didn't allow them to stay there, and they had to move on somewhere else. They couldn't stay and do ministry there. And so they set sail for Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. On that trip from India to Burma, she was quite pregnant, and she miscarried at eight months along. You can imagine if you've had a miscarriage, any miscarriage is difficult. You imagine being on a boat away from your family. You can imagine the difficulty of that, perhaps, if, if you've gone through that. Well, thankfully, God blessed him with another child, Roger, the one to whom I shared about she had this desire that he would become a missionary. But sadly, the Lord didn't honor her desires for Roger. He died at eight months. Can you imagine an eight-month-old child dying? I can't imagine the grief of that. I have five kids, and I don't know what it would be like to lose one of them. She didn't come home. It didn't deter her from the calling to take the gospel to Burma. She writes to her mother about Roger's death, and she writes this. Little did I think when I wrote you last that my next letter would be filled with a melancholy subject 
on which I must now write. Death, regardless of our lonely situation, has entered our dwelling and made one of the happiest families wretched. Our little Roger Williams, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in the silent grave. Eight months, we enjoyed the precious little gift, and if you're a parent, you can you can really resonate with what she says next, in which time he had so completely entwined himself around his parents' hearts that his existence seemed necessary to their own. But God has taught us by afflictions what, he would not, what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property, and whatever rival intrudes, he will tear it away. Most probably would have given up and left. But God sustained her. Christ strengthened her. She continued on in her ministry, her and Adoniram, laboring for the gospel. She would go through some serious health trials. In 1822, about 10 years after they'd moved, she had to return to the United States because of liver problems. And she came to get some healing. And, but she didn't come and bellyache and bemoan. She actually wrote a book. She wrote a book, and it's a long title, as older books used to be. She wrote a book called A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. And it was actually one of the earliest histories of American mission. When she came back to Burma, uh, she found that her husband was imprisoned at an Iram. Uh, there was a first Anglo-Burmese war going on, and if you were an Anglo, they put you in prison, kind of like the Jap happened to the Japanese in World War II, where many of them were put in internment camps just because they were Japanese, and we were fighting the Japanese. So what does Anne do? She moves outside a little shack outside the prison, and for two years, she goes and ministers to her husband, takes food, and she lobbies for his release. Scholars tell us from a human perspective, if she had not lobbied for his release, Adoniram probably would have never got out and he would have died. But finally, her relentless lobbying paid off and he was released and they continued their ministry. She would get pregnant with Maria in 1826 and uh, Maria would die uh, shortly before, uh, before uh, Anne would die. Anne died at the age of 36. 36. She had 14 years. She Married at 22, moved to missions, did missions for 14 years. She contracted smallpox and died. Was hers a wasted life? What did she accomplish? Well, she obviously did lots of evangelism. She ministered to orphan girls, educated children. She was actually the first Protestant to translate the scriptures into Burmese. She translated the Gospel of Matthew. She actually wrote a catechism in Burmese and translated the books of Daniel and Jonah from the Old Testament into Burmese. Her letters home were actually published as devotional writings, and some scholars have said, quote, her work and writings made the role of missionary wife as a legitimate calling for 19th century Americans. Another wrote about her and said, her letters and examples kept missions alive for American Baptists. Because of her numerous biographies, she remains the most influential missionary woman in American history. And in addition to that, she was an incredible helper to her husband. Adoniram would not have lived apart from her, and he went to live a long life. He died at the age of 62 after 40 years of mission. When Adoniram and Anne went from India to Burma, when they couldn't stay in India, people told them, do not go to the Burmese. They are so hardened, they will never respond to the gospel. It's useless. And they said, we're going to trust God. He's sovereign. He'll work. And they had a dream. They, they were praying, literally, that God would preserve their life long enough to translate the Bible into Burmese and to see one church of maybe 100 people planted. They thought, if we live to see that, that would be like amazing success. Well, did God answer their prayers? Not in the lifetime of Anne did he answer those prayers, but because of Anne, Adoniram lived on and continued to minister. And by the time Adoniram died at age 62, 
the entire Bible was translated into Burmese. And there wasn't just one church, there were 100 churches of about 8,000 Christians in this place that was previously told it was impenetrable with the gospel. Friends, Romans 15 is telling us to embrace the priority of taking the gospel to unreached people groups. Anne and Adoniram sought from Scripture. They trusted in dependence on their missionary God. And friends, we are to do the same because Christ calls us to unreached peoples, because Christ works through us to reach unreached peoples, and thus Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the biblical priority of taking the gospel to unreached peoples. Let's pray and respond to God's word. Our Father in heaven, I pray that this text would haunt is not the right word, but I pray this text would weigh upon us as a church, as individual members, that we would see the glory and beauty of the great mission to which you've called your church. Lord, we're called to worship you first and foremost, but also to create other worshipers through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel of grace. And Lord, you call us to do this to the ends of the earth. Our Savior is so glorious in his redemptive activity. We know that he laid down his life for an innumerable host of men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the heartbeat of scripture is that every one of the elect that Christ died for would hear and respond to the gospel. Thank you that you deign to use us as instruments in your great mission. And Father, I pray for this church as a church. I pray for its members. I pray for every one of us who are sitting under your word today that you would captivate us with this mission. That in humble reliance on your rich and free grace in Jesus Christ, we would engage as radical senders and radical goers with a love for your name and a love for the lost. Lord, continue to do this work in Zion. Thank you for their passion to grow in this. Thank you for this missions conference weekend that we're concluding today where they've looked at mission and thought about how to be engaged in mission. Grant that this would be a continuation and a deepening of this church ministering not only to their neighbors who so desperately need the gospel, but to the unreached nations of our world. Lord, use Zion Presbyterian Church to extend and advance your gospel throughout the earth. We love you. We thank you for our time in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.